Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good and I'm actually really overly enthusiastic, if that's possible, about talking with my friend <laughs> and someone I've learned immensely from, Dr. Kristen Neff. You'll say more about her, I know, but I just wanna say that reflecting on her career, we're gonna be having the chance to listen to someone who's been a genuine trailblazer for over 20 years with a lot of personal courage and wisdom along the way. And I'm just really, really, really happy to be able to have this conversation with her. Yeah, as you said, today we have the pleasure of welcoming really a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, Dr. Kristen Neff. So Dr. Neff is an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin. She conducted, as you said, some of the very first empirical studies on self-compassion almost 20 years ago. Alongside her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, she's also developed an empirically supported training program called Mindful Self-Compassion, which is taught by thousands of teachers around the world. She's also the author of the groundbreaking book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. And on June 15th, she'll be releasing her new book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. We had the pleasure of talking with Kristen on the podcast a few years ago, and it's really great to welcome her back. So Kristen, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Hi, Forrest. And I have to say, your father, Rick, Dr. Hansen, has been really a mentor <laughs> to me as well. I've re he's really given me a lot of advice and great guidance through the years. So I'm also very happy to be talking with you both. So self-compassion, and feel free to correct me, you're the expert here. As I understand it, is compassion, which has these two key elements of empathy and benevolence. You know, we feel for suffering, we feel for burdens, weariness, stresses, and sorrows. And then we we don't just feel it empathically, but we actually have a warm-heartedness toward it. We wanna also help, often if we can. And then self-compassion more or less applies that to oneself, often with a sense of common humanity, that we're not alone in our suffering and so on. When people think about that, and, and you have observed this, it tends to emphasize the tender aspects of this, so like, oh, you know, including self-compassion for ourselves, a, a sort of tenderness and so on. And your book is about fierce self-compassion. And I wondered if you could help us understand the distinction between sort of tender compassion and self-compassion and fierce self-compassion. Yes, I'd be happy to. And so you're right, my earlier work tended to emphasize the tender side of self-compassion, the fact that it can allow us just to be with ourselves as we are in all our brokenness and imperfection. So it's really more of the accepting stance of compassion, the understanding, the warmth, the soothing, the comfort, which is really key to what makes self-compassion so helpful. But through the years, and not only in my research, but especially teaching people about self-compassion, I started to realize that this view of self-compassion is really one-sided, that there's also the fierce side of compassion. And by the way, I didn't come up with the term fierce self-compassion. I wish I had, but the term fierce compassion is something that's used in Buddhism, right? So there's, there's been a lot of talk. For instance, Sharon Salzberg teaches workshops on fierce compassion. The idea that sometimes to alleviate suffering, which is really at the heart of compassion, we need to be brave, we need to take action, we need to do something. There's one story of, you know, the Dalai Lama was giving a talk on compassion and someone said, you know, but what do you do about pedophiles? And he said, 
what do you mean? What you, what do you do? You, you know, you throw them in jail and you throw away the key. I mean, compassion isn't just about acceptance. Compassion is really about alleviating suffering. And sometimes in order to alleviate suffering, we have to not accept things. So this is true not only when compassion is aimed outward, but also when compassion is aimed inward, right? So there are three main ways I've identified. There, there are probably more, but at least three main ways that fierce self-compassion taking action can be a benefit to ourselves. One is protection, right? A really important part of self-compassion is protecting ourselves. This may mean drawing boundaries, Right? If someone's encroaching on our boundaries or getting in our personal space or asking things that are unreasonable, they're treating us unfairly, right? maybe even unjustly, well, then an important aspect of self-compassion is standing up and saying, no, you know, no, that's not okay. So for instance, I've really seen the Me Too movements and the Black Lives Matter movements as self-compassion movements in terms of protection. And then the two others, just real quickly, I won't go too deeply into it, but I'm providing for our needs. In other words, instead of just saying yes to others all the time, saying yes to ourselves, taking action to fulfill ourselves. And then finally, really importantly, motivating change. The number one block to self-compassion research shows is the belief that it's going to make us lazy and complacent. It doesn't, right? Self-compassion, when you care about yourself, it drives you to try to change either your own behaviors or change a situation to, again, make things better, to alleviate your suffering and to achieve what you can. That's why I felt the book was needed, focusing particularly on fear, self-compassion. One of the points that you make inside of the book and in just like the broader writing that you've done on this topic are the ways in which these two forms of compassion can kind of work together with each other. And I, I think I'm actually directly quoting you when I say this. I think I pulled it from a video that you recorded about the topic, something along the lines of, Tenderness without fierceness becomes complacency. Fierceness without tenderness becomes hostile and aggressive. And I was just wondering if you could speak more to kind of the balance of those two forms of self-compassion. Yes. I mean, balance is really key. I'm afraid in my book, I almost went overboard with the balance scene, but you can't get away from it because it's absolutely <laughs> yeah. key. So one of the metaphors I like to use for fierce and tender compassion is yin and yang. And I like it because, you know, yin is really the more the tender side Yang is more the fierce side. And from the perspective of Chinese philosophy, you know, ill health is defined by an imbalance between yin and yang. So we're always aiming to get balance between these two energies. But unfortunately, in our society, and actually in most societies, imbalance is built into the system because gender role socialization, we raise boys to be young, but not yin. I mean, boys are called names if they're too tender or too sensitive, and that harms men and boys. And girls are raised to be tender, but not fierce, right? And they're called different types of names if they're too fierce. And so basically something that's part of being human, that both these energies that we need, everyone needs to balance and integrate it within themselves, were messed up from an early age by the fact that we're only allowed to really develop and express one side of this fundamental, you know, dualism, which ultimately is supposed to point towards non-duality, right? And so I have a lot of fun playing with that metaphor, but balance really is key. So in the subtitle of the book, just as you said, you emphasize the importance of fierce self-compassion for women. And I think right there, you drew out this fashion in which the two sides of the coin can be useful for different groups of people who are maybe socialized into traditional roles 
that become maladaptive. They're overweighed on one side or another. And it seems to me, as you call out in your book, that there are many cultural forces that put particular pressure on women to lean into maybe the more tender forms of self-compassion and to not express the more fierce forms of self-compassion by, as you were saying earlier, standing up for themselves, drawing clear boundaries, and so on. Was there something in particular that you were really hoping that women would receive from the book and from learning this more fierce form of self-compassion? What did you really want to leave people with? Yeah, well, absolutely. I, I wanted women, and but really, you know, all people, all people need balance, but particularly yeah. women, to give themselves permission to be fierce because it is absolutely needed in our world today, right? Women have to be part of solving. I mean, if you look at the world today, there are so many problems. Global warming to start, you know, racial inequality, wealth inequality, broken healthcare system. There, there are so many problems in the world today. And women are gonna have to be at the forefront, I think, at least have equal place at the tables of power and changing things for the better. And to do that, women are gonna have to be able to own their fierceness. And I'll just tell you, you know, a kind of personal story. One of the reasons I wrote this book is first of all, we're talking about gender role socialization, not actual gender, or even gender identity. It's basically how you're raised. So for instance, I was raised as a woman and I'm cisgender, so I feel that fits me, but yet I'm more young than yin personality-wise. Right. So I've got a lot of fierce young energy and I, I kind of struggled with anger, you know, my, my whole mm. life. And one of the impetuses for this book was understanding how, you know, so, so men, the research shows very clearly when men get angry, people are fine with it. They believe him more. They think he's passionate. When women get angry, they, they don't like it. They think she's crazy. They believe her less. So women are not allowed to be angry. And yet anger, especially when it's aimed at preventing harm, right? Anger that causes harm to self or others is not useful. But anger that's harnessed for good, like for social justice, for standing up, you know, gives you courage. There's a lot of positive features of anger. And the fact that women aren't allowed to get angry is a problem because that really disempowers women. And so part of the reason for me writing this book is I, in my own personal journey, I was always kind of ashamed of my angry side. I mean, here I am, a mindfulness and mm. compassion teacher, you know, and I, I still have issues with anger. How come I haven't gotten over it yet? And then <laughs> I started realizing that this, this was part of my fierce nature. And it's my fierce nature that's largely responsible for a lot of the things I've accomplished in my life. And so as I came to terms with not only accepting my anger, I didn't just like mindfully accept it. I like got down and prayed to it. Like, thank you. Thank you, goddess of anger, because you give me power, you know, so really, really celebrating that young energy within me. But it was a journey. And so one of the things I'm hoping to do with this book is giving women permission to get in contact with all parts of themselves and be authentic in a way that I think is a lot healthier for everyone, not just for women. I'm going to say something that might raise an eyebrow. The way I want to say it is I'm quoting a saying that I heard. And we can look at it, you know, on its own merits, whatever they might be. It was a comment that as a generalization, many exceptions and so forth, women are socialized to suppress anger and the expression of anger, I should say, in particular. And men are socialized to suppress the expression of fear. Mm. Right. So then what we end up with in adulthood is men who are afraid of women and women who are angry at men. 
<laughs> pause. And it's really kind of an interesting thing to reflect on. And more generally, I just wondered, Kristen, part of the, for me, the strengths of the book is the way you weave together your academic background, world-class academic, solid researcher with personal passion, fierceness that fills your pages, as well as many, many specific applications. So with just first the regard to the uh, kind of research grounding, the embeddedness there, one of the things that clearly has motivated your book is a recognition that women in general have been socialized throughout the ages and still are, and in addition to socialized, face structural barriers in the present that they have to deal with every day at work and at home, the expectations of others, yeah. the internalized oppression, to use that phrase and so forth. So I just wondered if you could give us a few minutes situating the issue of the internal, of the suppression internally, let's say, of fierceness and power yeah. and wholesome uses of anger for women and how that fits in a larger economic and cultural landscape. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot there, which is why I spend a lot of time in my book discussing these issues. So again, I'll talk about a, a personal story because as you say, I weave in a lot of personal stories because a lot of my ideas come from my own experience, right? So one of the things, probably the thing that most directly precipitated me writing this book was the Me Too movement, hmm. right? So I had actually unfortunately been involved in a situation you know, kind of me too, where um, someone I was close to turned out to be sexually harassing and abusing women in his employee. And it was, it was really traumatic. Mm. When I found out about it, when I heard about it, I was like mama bear. I was like, you know, all my ferocity exploded like a volcano. There was no way I was going to let it continue. I was going to do whatever I had to, to expose the situation, to protect women from harm. But unpacking it, what I saw is a lot of women had a real hard time. And by the way, I shouldn't just say women, because as a woman, I'm, I also didn't see it clearly for many years. So I kind of had my own blinders on. And when they were finally off, I saw clearly and I became fierce mama bear. But for many years, I was kind of like, and I would have never guessed that I was someone like this, but me too. I said, oh, well, he's, yeah, he's a bit of a lech, but you know, he does such good in the world. And, you know, you, you kind of like, you don't see what you don't want to see. And mm -hmm. partly that's because of women's socialization to not expect men to be any different. Oh, that's just kind of the way men are, right? And then so seeing how all the women involved in this situation, they had that approach to this man. That's just the way he is. It's a little gross, but you know, no one really took it seriously. No one put all the pieces together. And so when it all came out, I noticed some of the women were like me. They were just enraged and they took action. But a lot of women, just their reactions was, I don't want to rock the boat. You know, and some of it comes from this good place of, I don't want to harm anyone. You know, maybe if I just don't say anything, you know, maybe it'll go away. <laughs> but those are the types of reactions that have allowed these things to occur in the past and not become exposed. And that's contributed to, you know, the, the situation. And also some of the women, especially the women who are directly victimized, it took them a long time to get in touch with their anger. I actually had to really help them and coach them get in touch with their mm -hmm. anger because, again, they had been so socialized not to be angry. So these are some of the structural things in place that, if you think about it, have really been designed to keep women from rocking the boat, right? Yeah. You know, women needed to, in some ways, be willing to go along with the unequal system in order to perpetuate it. And once women say, no, I'm not going along with this anymore, 
you know, everything has started to change already. And I'm hoping that this, these look at tools to help, help women as we, as we do rock the boat, because a boat needs to be rocked, you know, seriously, big time. It does. It needs to change. Maybe I'll just uh, transition here by quoting from the very, very, very beginning of your book, in which you quote uh, the U.S. National Youth Poet Laureate, Amanda Gorman, at President Biden's inauguration. Here we go. One thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. Yes. So beautiful, isn't it? I mean, that's really the point I'm trying to get across is that even anger when it's directed against harm, but this fierceness, this is the face of love, mm. you know, and that is, it seems inconsistent, but when they're really, when you're really fully open to self-compassion, it includes the whole spectrum of emotions and energies that are all aimed towards love in the sense of it's aimed toward the alleviation of suffering. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's a wonderful point. Are there specific practices that you found that tend to help people who might be estranged from however you want to refer to it, this young energy, this fierce self-compassion? Yes. Maybe they become extremely socialized, leaning into a particular direction. Practices that help them activate that inside of themselves that are particularly useful. Yeah. So that's what I tried to do in this book. So it's maybe like a third science and maybe some history, a third my personal story, but a third practices. I mean, everything I do, you know, I'm like Rick this way. We don't just talk. We like to give people concrete things that they can do so they can train their brain in this new way of being. I've been annoying for us with that aspect of my personality for many years. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so important. I mean, really, it's, you know, if it's just talk, yeah, it's interesting, but how helpful is it really? Totally. And so I think what really makes it helpful are the practices. So I took a lot of the practices, almost all of them, in fact, from the Mindful Self-Compassion program that I developed with my colleague, Chris Germer. And some of them already, like we've got a motivation exercise, for instance, that already is designed to cultivate this young energy. But a lot of them, I just adapted a little bit. I just put a little spin on them to bring about some of this fierceness in terms of cultivating the fierce energy. So pretty much the practices are designed either using words or maybe the breath or meditation visualizations to call up the fierceness. But in almost every single practice, you probably noticed, again, it maybe got a little repetitive, but I think it's so necessary, calling up the fierceness, but then also intentionally bringing in the tenderness. And there's a lot of ways we can do this. One of this is uh, through touch, different types of touch you know, engender more tenderness or strength and support. A body posture, you know, when you're more relaxed, it's more accepting and tender. When you're up, see, it. When, when you're upright, it's more fierce and energetic. And the language you use, right, makes a difference. So I, I, I really did try to explore. And most of these practices, by the way, I developed for myself as I was working through my issues, trying to think, okay, if I tweak this a little bit, will it work? But for the last year, maybe year and a half, I've also been teaching fierce self-compassion workshops and trying to refine the practices based on the feedback I get. I was really struck by your distinction about anger. Yes. So anger for harm, anger that harms, anger that helps, Mm -hmm. let's say. And we've spoken a fair amount in, in your book, you speak about it, in terms of bringing a kind of 
anger that helps or a fierceness more broadly, which may not have anger in it. Right, it may not. This may have gravity, yeah. may have intensity, mm-hmm. may have just speaking truth to power, fearless. I think of this fundamental teaching from the roots of Buddhism. One is truly wise who is peaceable, friendly, and fearless. Mm-hmm. It's that last part where the fierceness can, yeah. can live. Okay. Bravery, yeah. Yeah, so we've talked. we can talk about it applied out in the world. And you also talk about it, for me, wonderfully in the book, applied internally to oneself. And that led me into thinking about two ways in which people can bring anger and fierceness to themselves. One way is pretty harmfully, self-critically. What are some ways to bring fierce self-compassion to oneself without tipping into the pitfalls of harshness and tearing oneself down, the problematic aspects of anger? Yeah. So, you know, again, it all comes down to balance. And, you know, the the question over and over again, the the, really the quintessential self-compassion question is, what do I need? Mm. Right. What do I need right now to be well? And so sometimes you need to go left. Sometimes you need to go right. So in some situations, maybe the thing to do would be to bring in more tenderness, Mm. more acceptance, you know, give yourself a break you know, it's okay, kind of connecting maybe with the pain of the internal criticism. In fact, we have um, some really good exercises for working with the inner critic. And one of the most powerful is by really accepting and giving kindness to your inner critic. Hmm. So sometimes that's what you need. Can you walk us through that? Make that concrete, please, because I I need some help there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So so we borrow a little bit from internal family systems theory, which is parts work, which is a great therapy approach, which basically involves giving compassion to all of your parts and realizing that they all have a role. Hmm. So what we do is we identify the inner critic, we identify what it says, how it expresses itself. And then really importantly, we identify how it's trying to help us, even Hmm. if it's not helping us, how it's trying to help us and keep us safe. And then we thank the inner critic and we kind of give it some love, you might say, some appreciation. And then we, we ask it to maybe make room for another voice which is the voice of compassionate motivation, which is more encouraging as opposed to critical as a way to helping you change. So it might be constructive criticism as opposed to harsh, you know, damning judgmental criticism. So that's one of the ways we work with inner criticism is is by understanding it and thanking it. But sometimes actually maybe what you need is to say, hey, stop it, drawing boundaries, like you won't bully me, Mm. if that's what you need. You're protecting yourself from yourself, in effect. Yes, we're so complicated. We have all these parts, right? And the thing is, from the outside, I don't think, unless you're someone's therapist and you really know their personal history really well, I think it's very hard to give blanket advice about what you need in the moment. I think I personally trust people's inner wisdom, that if they're open to seeing everything that's happening and they really cultivate this goodwill, that they will have the wisdom to figure out what to do. And maybe they'll get it wrong and they'll try again and try something else. So whether or not you need to use more fierce or more tender compassion for yourself, if you're being very harshly critical, I think it kind of just depends on your situation. But even the fierce self-compassion, the standing up to the bully, so to speak, you don't blame the bully. You don't judge the bully. You know, you're firm. And that's the same whether the bully is an outer bully or an inner bully. It's not like you hate the bully or call it names. You stupid bully. I hate you. Right. Mm. It's like, Hey, that's not okay. Mm -mm, Nope. So it's like drawing the line in the sand without making it personal. It strikes me that one of the really freeing aspects of first 
compassion and fear self-compassion is the ways in which we don't get stuck against or entangled with whatever it is we are yes. protecting ourselves from or, or standing up against. Right. There's something very clean and clear about it. I really like that. Yeah. You you say it, it's there, but you're not entangled with it. You don't have to keep justifying yourself. You don't have to keep explaining or proving yourself. Right. It's not about placating the other person or managing their reactions, right. which women, and I think maybe men, but especially women mm -hmm. tend to feel kind of burdened by, like it's somehow their job to manage the inner world of other people. Yeah. No, you don't have to. But boom, you know, peaceable, friendly, and fearless. You say what is to be said and right. you said it. It's there. That's right. That's great. Really freeing. So as we've explored so far, really, women are centered in the book and the subtitle of the book and the context of it. There is that important distinction that you drew at the very beginning between gender socialization and gender identity, sexual identity, all of those different things. But you made a really interesting point to me before we even started recording, which had to do with the ways in which men can think about fierce self-compassion and the ways in which this gender socialization into these roles has also harmed men and how they could be benefited by reclaiming aspects of this as well. And I was just hoping that you would kind of speak to that now that we have the uh, recording rolling. Yeah, yeah. Well, I really think that traditional gender role socialization that's rigid and tries to stuff people into boxes is harmful for everyone. I mean, it's especially harmful for people who aren't cisgender, who, you know, who, who don't identify with the, the gender that they're socialized in. You know, maybe they're non-binary or they're trans or something like that. But even for cisgender people, even people who, well, yeah, that kind of fits, you know, my gender, my, my assigned sex, it's so harmful to feel like you are only allowed to express this one energy. And the way it harms men is, if you look at the research, I mean, you know, I'm a little biased, but <laughs> there's over 3,500 <laughs> studies that really point to self-compassion as one of the most powerful sources of coping and resilience we have available to us. So just, you know, to give an example of maybe something more traditionally masculine, combat soldiers. We know that combat soldiers who saw action overseas in Iraq or Afghanistan who could be self-compassionate about the trauma they'd experienced. They were less likely to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome, less likely to contemplate suicide as a way to deal with the pain, less likely to turn to drugs or alcohol, better able to function in their daily life. So compassion really strengthened them. But those people, because of their, you know, let's say men, because of their gender role socialization, who aren't able to use compassion because it somehow it's going to make them weak, <laughs> actually, the refusal to use self-compassion makes them weak. Mm. So gender role socialization robs men of the ability to use this incredibly powerful tool of strength, emotional strength, to deal with some of the challenges in their life. It's a real shame. My colleague, Chris Germer, who I do a lot of work with, I keep on saying, Chris, you need to write the follow-up book to mine called Tender Self-Compassion, How Men Can Harness the Power of Tenderness to like, <laughs> you know, be strong and have inner strength and be emotionally intelligent or something like that. Yeah, right? totally. So, and again, it's not, it's not to say that, I'm not trying to say that we should do away with gender roles, that everyone should be exactly the same. Actually, that's not it at all. My feeling is that people should be allowed to express themselves authentically. Yeah. You know, and there may be some biological differences on average that hormones, whatever, that channel people who are, you know, born for some people, one way, I don't know. I don't, in a way, it doesn't even matter. 
because if everyone's allowed to express themselves authentically, yeah. then we'll just be who we are without, again, being shoved into boxes. Yeah. I still think there's going to be tremendous, probably even more diversity, interesting, fascinating diversity, as everyone brings their unique life experience to the expression of yin and yang, you might say. Hmm. But yeah, and it's funny because um, I am cisgender, but I've always rejected traditional feminine gender role socialization. I, I have a story when I was in high school. I'm like, screw this. I, you know, because there's so much pressure, especially on women to be pretty, to be attractive, you know, especially for heterosexual women to be attractive to a man, to feel valued, to feel valuable, to feel wanted. Mm-hmm. And when I was when I was younger, I said, forget that. You know, that's not going to work out. I'm going to make my way in the world by being smart. But even now, you know, as I'm middle-aged and so I'm currently single and I can tell you there's a lot of challenges for especially women past a certain age to confront this idea of, you know, going back generations of, you know, if you aren't in, if you're in a relationship, you're less valuable, you're a spinster. I mean, people, you know, you need someone to say, I love you, you're special, you're beautiful, and you mean something, I'll, I'll be here for you, I'll protect you. And it's, I've really had to confront that socialization head on and say, I am not going to let my happiness be contingent on that, mm, you know, mm-hmm. and it's taken a lot of fear, self-compassion to get me there. And it's, it's still a constant practice because again, the world colludes that make women think that they need this. It's not that I don't want it. But I've really had to work at not needing it. And men, I have to say, men men want it as well. A lot, well, not everyone, but a lot of men. But they don't need it. Their sense of safety, and this is a, an unconscious thing that comes from just millennia. We, we couldn't even, use, we used to not be able to own property without a man. Yeah. Right? It's, our entire worth was dependent on having a man in relationship with us. You know, I've had to, again, confront that in my personal life. And that's that's another way I found fierce self-compassion so useful in helping uh, to free me from that bond. It really is a type of bondage. So I, I went a little off target there, but I wondered. If it was. No, I, I thought it was, I actually thought it was lovely, Kristen, just to just so you know, um, I really appreciated it. And to give a little bit of social commentary, because I can't help myself. One of the more fascinating things a person can do if they're interested in these topics is just look through legal history and look at how recently it was that a woman needed to be in relationship with a man in order to do something like, say, open a bank account. Yeah. And I think that you would be shocked by how recently in, you know, United States, Western world history it was that these things were enormous impediments to not just self-expression in the world, because obviously on this podcast, we really care about things like self-actualization, mm-hmm. but just toward material functioning, like the very, very basic things, the basic necessities of kind of making your way through life. Absolutely. And I think that you're absolutely right, the ways in which our internal experience, our internal emotional experience can be tied to this. And a lot of what you were saying about authenticity which I think is really the key word yeah. in a lot of this. It's about authentic expression and claiming whatever your authentic expression is really relates to my own experience where I was talking to a friend recently about when I was a kid and we're talking, you know, five, six, seven years old, something like that. There were parts of me that were rewarded socially and parts of me that were punished socially. I was rewarded socially for being smart, for being 
capable for being outgoing. I was punished socially for being sensitive, for being relational, yes. for being, you know, a little too big in a variety of different extroverted ways as I was a very like gregarious, engaged a child who really liked other people and felt really bad when I felt like other people didn't like me. Yes. And you lean into the aspects of your personality that are rewarded. And I think that that's so much what you're speaking to here. Then that creates systems of functioning that cascade into adulthood. And, you know, here we are. And part of the job is to do a little unlearning around these things. That's right. And and it takes bravery. That's why it takes that fierceness. Mm. And here's the thing, especially for, for, I think, again, especially for women, but men have this as well. But women are so socialized to be nice, mm. you mm -hmm. know, and we're, we're valued if we're nice. And what does yeah. being nice mean for a woman? It means being agreeable. Compliant. It means yeah. saying, yes. Oh, yes, I'll help you. Oh, yes, I'll do that for you. And a lot of women have spoken to me of the fear that arises when they think about drawing boundaries. What if they don't like me? And here's what I have to say. They may not like you as much. Mm -hmm. It's not like if you say no, that people say, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. In fact, there may be some, some people who do like you a little less because, you know, the system is they benefit from your self-sacrifice, and they may not be so happy about it when you start saying no. You know, again, you don't want to say no rudely. You want to be nice, nice, kind about it, right? And not mean about it. But my, my own experience is people may not like you as much. And that's another thing that self-compassion gives you. And there's a lot of research that shows one of the benefits of self-compassion is your sense of worth isn't as contingent on social approval. Mm. And that's such freedom you know, to know, okay, maybe they don't like me that much or as much as I would like, but I can like myself. And then once you know that your primary sense of worth comes from the inside, that is, that is freedom. Mm. And then you can do what really makes you happy. So Kristen, I want to check two things with you and then kind of ask you a kind of a deep dive practical question. My understanding of the research is that the last thing you said there, this quality of self-acceptance and self-compassion, mm -hmm. giving you a feeling of worth that's not so contingent on external approval or even particular accomplishments, actually promotes taking chances in, in career and oh, yeah. is a factor, self-compassion being a factor in people being more ambitious, more willing to swing for the fences and go for it. Because if they don't quite make it, well, it won't be such a devastating injury because they've got this internal resource that is very supportive of themselves, self-compassion. So is that true? Yeah. Well, so I'm going to give you a little nuance. What the research shows, if, if you, yeah. for instance, measure desired standards, performance standards, how high you want to go, how well you want to achieve, yeah. there's actually no difference between people who are self-compassionate and people who are self-critical. Uh -huh. Because a lot of people who are self-critical also want to achieve these lofty goals. The huge difference, and it's a big one, is what happens when you fall a little bit short of your goal. Yeah. You make a mistake or you don't reach it. Then that's where everything changes because people who are self-critical, the way they try to motivate themselves is through shame, self-criticism, you know, harshness, thinking that's going to make them try harder next time. When in fact, and by the way, it, it kind of works. Like for instance, if you look at the parenting literature, corporal punishment does induce short-term compliance. But it causes a lot of problems for that kid down the road in terms of, you know, low self-esteem and poor attachment and, you know, messes them up psychologically. Something very similar with ourselves. So, yes, you may lead to short-term compliance. Maybe you work a little harder. I mean, people do get through law school and med school with harsh self-criticism. It kind of works in the short term. But what it does is it creates performance anxiety. 
because you're so afraid if you fail, you're going to beat yourself up. But that actually undermines your performance in the long term, performance anxiety. It leads to fear of failure, yeah. right? Which is what, what you're talking about in terms of taking risks. Yeah. So like you've got these goals for yourself, but if you're really harsh with yourself, you're going to not want to take the risk, do the risky behavior because you may fail. Exactly. So people are more willing to take learning risks. Yeah. And this is really key. You can learn from your failure. I mean, if you if you beat yourself up for failing, you're full of shame. That actually shuts down your ability to learn. If it's okay to fail, wonderful. Yeah. Then you're able to learn from your failure, and therefore you're more willing to pick yourself up and try again. And growth mind state set all all these good motivational qualities are linked to more self compassion. But in terms of just like what my goals are for myself, they're actually the same. I mean it more like pursuit. Not so much the goals, but the, uh, but exactly what you're saying. Yes. The willingness to go for it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, wonderful. The willingness to go go for it. Less fear of failure. The less procrastination, for instance. Procrastination mm. is one of the things that people do to, to avoid taking risks. Mm. <laughs> that is really interesting. I've never heard anyone say that. Yeah, there's, there's so a cool. fair amount of research on procrastination. It, it helps a lot. Yeah. Okay, here's the second thing, you know, on my way to my practical question. Second thing, it seems to me that compassion and self-compassion and the tender and fierce aspects of compassion and self-compassion are not innately gendered. They're not innately gendered. They can be applied related to particular gender socialization type issues. They can have particular value for people who've been socialized and been structurally treated or mistreated in different ways. Mm -hmm. But the compassion and the self-compassion, whether tender or fierce, is not innately gendered. Is that correct? I, I can't put my hand on my heart and say there are no biological differences. There may be some, they're small. There may be some small differences having to do with hormones. Right. For instance, oxytocin tends to lead to more of that nurturing quality. And oxytocin, interestingly, can also lead to like fierce mama bear protection of one's young, which is also female energy. So there, there may be some slight hormonal differences, but what we know is that if, they, if they're there, they're very small. And then within person variation is larger than between person variation. And socialization also interacts with the biological factors. Mm. So for instance, a man who's caring for a baby will produce more oxytocin and a woman who's told to fire someone will produce more testosterone, mm. right? So, uh, you know, I'm not willing to say there are no differences, but they're very small and they're greatly exaggerated by gender role socialization. Uh. So for instance, in my research, we know that women who combine the fierceness and tenderness was labeled androgynous in the sex role uh, literature. And, and androgynous people associate it with how you look, but in psychology, it's really just people who combine agency and communion, yin and yang, high levels of both. They've got the same levels of self-compassion as um, men do. But interestingly, if you don't take gender role socialization into account, you just look by biological sex, men have slightly more self-compassion than women do, which I think is because men feel more entitled to meet their own needs than women do. But women have, quite, women have quite a fair, it's a much larger, it's a small difference, it's consistent. There's a pretty large consistent, stable difference in terms of compassion for others, mm. that women are more compassionate to others than men are. Same goes with empathy. 
you know, I think probably the, the vast majority of that is gender role socialization, but there may be a little bit of biology sneaking in there. Um, mm. I don't know. I can't say for sure. That's interesting. Well, okay. Now the practical question. Okay. So one of the three things that you talked about in terms of uh, fierce compassion, fierce self-compassion was about motivation. Yes. And as I listen to you and reflect on this, both for myself and for people I know of all genders and transgender as well, when I think about the aspect of motivation, part of what seems there around the fierceness element is a willingness to, in a sense, disengage. I I think about so many of my clients, especially women, I would say you need to have tattooed on the inside of your eyelids, NMP, not my problem. Right, yes. In other words, to give yourself permission and support yeah. uh, that you don't need to be motivated to solve their problem. You don't, you're not responsible for it. Right. You're not so implicated in it. The kind of weird stuff that's going on between their ears is, you know, not your business. It's not your fault. You know, the healthy aspects of that yeah. seem a key part of motivation. Yeah. Additionally, there's the application of fierce compassion to oneself that says, you know, you got to start fill in the blank, lifting weights in my case, taking your vitamins, mm -hmm. not drinking so much, mm -hmm. not spending so much time on stupid television, whatever that is, you need to get yeah. going if you really want to manifest your full self-expression in the world. You know, that kind of fierceness applied to oneself that's motivating. Yes. I just wonder if you could talk more about fierce self-compassion applied to oneself internally, emphasizing its motivational aspects. Yeah, well, and I think a really good analogy is a parenting analogy, which, you know, mm. you've done a good job with Forrest, clearly, so you could probably relate to this. <laughs> so, well, I appreciate 99%, <laughs> he did it himself. So, you know, so with a parent, I think we intuitively understand that, first of all, we accept our, hopefully, we accept our children unconditionally. Like we love them, whether or not they're succeeding or they're failing, you know, whether they're, when they're two years old, whether they're tantruming, whether they're being sweet. I mean, I love our acceptance of them as a person is unconditional, but we don't unconditionally accept their behaviors. That would actually be negligent parenting. If you didn't say to your kid, no, that's not okay. You need to do something different. Or if you didn't try to motivate your child to, you know, go to school and learn or develop their talents, that's part of being a good parent is motivation to try to help your child achieve their goals. But there's a distinction between accepting them as a person and accepting their behaviors. Mm. And that's the same thing with ourselves, right? So- Wow, slow that down. That's really good. <laughs> the difference between accepting yourself as a person- Yes. But not accepting certain problematic, including self-harming or other harming behaviors. Yes, the behaviors because- or situations, Whoa. right? You don't you don't want to accept any situation either. Situations can be harmful. Behaviors mm. can be harmful. Yeah. And what we know is the more we can accept ourselves unconditionally, the more able we are to actually change our behaviors in our situations. Mm. Wow! So there really is a distinction, and they so don't good. they don't conflict because again, one's aimed at the person, one's aimed at the behaviors or situation. They actually mutually support each other. How do you do as a parent? Did he ever kick you in the butt to say, hey, you got to work harder at this? I, th I think he did pretty great <laughs> as a parent in general. I, I feel really good about how it all turned out. I mean, I think that uh, just to give one parental bit or parenting bit, I, I've really been reflecting recently in the ways in which I think that it's impossible 
to have a child emerge into the world without some form of wounding. But I don't think that any of my wounding came from my parents. And I think that I'm in a, the extreme minority mm-hmm. by being inside of that category. I, I received my wounding as a child, but I don't think it came from my parents. And that's pretty great. Yeah. And I think that that's really helped build a really wonderful relationship with my dad and one where you know we feel comfortable working with each other in this kind of capacity, talking about this pretty important stuff, talking about your work, talking about self-compassion, self-actualization, you know, and I, and I, again, I I really love what you said there, just like my dad said about this distinction between accepting a whole person versus accepting all of their behaviors. And you can accept the whole person without accepting certain behaviors. And that, that kind of line in the sand, I I think is really critical for people listening. And it's really important. Thank you, Forrest. That was really touching. (laughs) I'm definitely going to put that in my personal treasure chest box. Oh, I'm glad. And it does make me think about experiences I had, including the moment you were born, Hmm. more broadly, about commitment. And I think about this as one of the things that's at the heart of what you're getting at, Kristen, in the fierceness element, what we're committed to. When we're committed, we're protective. To go back to your example, which of the mama bear, I've often thought about how, you know, if something threatens the cub, if the cub is with the daddy bear, cub is in big trouble. But if that cub is with the mama bear, that mother bear, as people know who are hikers and so forth, never get between a mother bear and her cub. You know, that's literally your in mortal peril as a, as a human hiking in the wilderness. So, you know, there's the mama bear who's committed to her cub. There's my own commitment to you, Forrest. And, and there is also our commitment to ourselves that is the basis for mobilizing that fierceness mm. motivationally to prod ourselves to, you know, disengage from what's not good for us and apply ourselves more to what is good for us and good for other people, right? That element of commitment. So, Going further from that, you have the epilogue of your wonderful book titled Becoming a Compassionate Mess. And that's such a great phrase, compassionate mess. And as a longtime recovering self-improver, I wonder if you could talk about becoming a compassionate mess. And then I know Forrest will finish up here with another question. Yeah, yeah. So that's also one of my favorite uh, expressions, and I have to evoke it constantly, (laughs) Right, which is the the, um, the goal of practice is simply to become a compassionate mess. Actually, it was Rob Nairn who first said that, and it, it just really stuck with me, because it, it's true. You know, our goal isn't necessarily to get it right. Our goal is just to open our hearts, right? And if that becomes your goal, in other words, your goal becomes to hold whatever arises, whether you get it right or wrong, with compassion and goodwill, and you know, concern with helping yourself in some way. Then it's really an achievable goal that you can, you know, you, you can do all the time. And so even with fierce self-compassion. So I talk about balance, right? Throughout the book, balancing fierce and tender self-compassion, but expect to get that wrong. I mean, it's not like a destination where we arrive at this place where we're balanced, we have compassion, we're, we're done. You know, it's, it's, it's a process. It's not a destination. And the process is this compassionate mess. So in other words, we accept ourselves unconditionally that we're going to get it wrong. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fall down. Life's going to happen. A pandemic's going to happen. Who knows what's going to happen? This is the life we signed up for. And then so sometimes we need some more fierceness to help. Sometimes we need some more tenderness to help. Sometimes we'll get it wrong. And it's really the process of bringing care and kindness to wherever we are in the moment and doing our best. 
that actually starts to become what we value the most. And I can say just personally, you know, after what 25 years of practice now, mindfulness, compassion practice, I, I am marginally probably a little improved in small ways, not every ways, but in terms of being maybe a little less reactive and a little wiser. I've, I've made some progress, but not nearly as much as I might have hoped. But what I have made a lot of progress in is now when I make mistakes, I mean, just to give you a real example, just the other day I was giving a talk and it was, it was a big, important talk and I had a certain amount of time and I got the timing wrong in my head and I went 15 minutes over and the, the people who were doing the talk were like pulling their hat out and I called so much stress, like I'm supposed to be a professional. And so when it happened, I felt such shame, like I'm supposed to be a professional. I cannot believe I got it so wrong. I caused such stress to these people. So I still got it wrong. But almost immediately, I was able to give myself compassion. And that didn't mean blowing it off. I took full responsibility. I made amends. I apologized. I offered them to, you know, I did, did what I needed to do. But my habit now, when I feel that shame, I know what to do. You know, I, I got it down. Okay, I feel shame. You know, can I hold it? I usually put, use physical touch. I hold that shame. You know, so, so there's the first, usually I start with the tender self-compassion in a situation like that. It's okay. It's human. Everyone makes mistakes. You didn't, you know, uh, yeah, you probably should have prepared a little more for the talk, but that's okay. I understand why, you know, you aren't a bad person. I love you. I care about you. All that stuff. I held it. And then the fierceness came on of, and what are you going to do about this to try to make amends? Mm. Right. And that I have developed the neural pathways I can't prevent the mistake, I must say, to be honest, but they're very, they're very well worn, those neural pathways that say, okay, you, oh, pain, pain's my mindfulness belt. In pain, you need compassion. Mm. And so that's uh, one thing I, I can say that I have developed over the years, a habit of holding the mess with compassion, even though I am still a mess. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's works, it's, it's good enough. It's good, you know, and, and it is beautiful in many ways, actually. I'd probably be boring if I were perfect. You are not boring. <laughs> what in we all? It's because I'm really not perfect. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's a great reflection, Kristen, and, and is so consistent with so many people's experience, particularly people who enter into the self-help universe. I mean, yeah. we've gotten so many different questions from people that are all some version of, wow, I've been, I've read all these books and I've listened to all these podcasts and I've done all this personal practice. Why am I still fill in the blank? Yeah. You know, with whatever fill in the blank happens to be. And I think that like a lot of this is just about the process of being human, right? Nobody's beyond reproach. The question mm -hmm. is, what do we do yeah. when that uh, that part of us gets activated or that experience happens to us that we're not so pleased by, we make that mistake, you know, like how quickly can we catch ourselves yes. when we fall on our face, right? Not yes. so much about you don't fall on your face in right. the first place, because of course you do, because you're human. Exactly. Um, one of the things that's come up a couple of times, of course, is this question around the benefits to different kinds of gender socialization groups mm -hmm. of different forms of practice. And of course, there are many things that people who have been socialized as women can do inside of their internal process to claim that fierce self-compassion, stand up for themselves, and so on. But of course, also they're existing inside of a power structure where, you know, many of the keys are still held by people in masculine bodies. Yeah. Are there things that male-bodied people can do to support women in their expression of fierce self-compassion? In terms of how you can support men can support women, allies, so to speak, you know, if I could ask, if I could ask one gift of all of men. Yeah. Please 
allow us to be fierce, allow us to be angry. Don't be so frightened by it. Don't tell us we're ugly when we're angry. Mm. Don't demand that to be considered pretty and acceptable. We need to be sweet and nice. You know, I have a lot of what, what I refer to in the book as Kali energy. Kali is the, the Hindu goddess. You know, she cuts off heads. She's, she's a very powerful kind of destructive force, incredibly powerful. But if you really look at what is Kali doing, what, whose heads are she cutting? You know, whose heads is she destroying? She, she cuts away illusion, particularly the illusion of separation. Mm. So that sword is the sword of truth. It's looking at actually really ego identification, which from the Buddhist model is really the, the main cause of our suffering. And that's what that ferocity is used for. We're cutting away the illusion of separation that binds us and makes us all suffer. And so I have a lot of Kali energy. And I know when it rises up, it scares the bejeebers out of men. I can tell you. Mm. <laughs> men are like, whoa, I don't know what to do with this. Even Chris Germer, we've had some <laughs> clashes about it. <laughs> Because he's actually more yin than yang, and I'm more yang than yin, and we, we joke about it. But if men could, maybe one thing to get from reading this book is understanding that your natural reaction may be one of fear or maybe like confusion or like, actually, the old way of being was a bit more comfortable when she was just agreeable. <laughs> mm, you know, mm-hmm. to the extent that you can understand that... <laughs> These prescriptions against women's anger, women's fierceness have really caused a lot of harm. And one thing that you can do as an ally is to make space for it, Mm. to make space for women's anger, to make space for women's rage. There may be a little correction needing to happen. You know, as women first start to own their anger, for instance, they may get a little off balance and it may not be pleasant, you know, but to the extent that you, or if you're a father or a husband or a friend, to the extent that you can allow women to really explore their fierceness, to support them, allow them to get it wrong. Doesn't mean, you know, if someone's harmful or mean, yeah, you, you can draw your boundaries too. But that, that would be such, such a gift mm. to be able to own and not only own, allow for, but really honor Mama Bear because Mama Bear is a superpower. She's a force of nature. <laughs> and, you know, again, if you can see it as something to be awe-inspiring as opposed to scary, that would help. I think you're totally right. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful reflection. And it really ties me into a question that we do try to ask most of the people who come on the podcast. And I particularly wanted to ask you because I think it's so germane to the book, to the work, to your content in general. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and to talk to yourself, as a young adult, say, which I think is sort of what I'm feeling here. Like you at 12 or 13, somebody may be entering high school going through some of these challenges. Right. What would you want to say to that person? Uh, yes, I would say so much. There's part of me that, of course, the psychologist to me is like, well, but I learned from all the mistakes I made and I needed to go through all those mistakes. So, you know, if I were to correct myself early on, would I be the person I am today? Probably not. So this part of me that we just kind of want to be a supportive presence. Nonetheless, if I if I actually did have the goal of trying to help me um, avoid some of that pain, yeah, I think I think the main message I would give myself is you really need to look within for love, for support, for commitment. Commitment hasn't worked out so well in my life. I have to say, my father, my spouses, moral commitment hasn't worked out so well. That's just my life. So if I could tell myself early on, 
that you are the one that needs to commit to yourself. This is where your sense of safety will be. This is where your sense of you're special, you're beautiful, I love you, I care about you. This is really the primary source you need to look to is within, not outside of yourself, especially, you know, a man. Friends are good, family's good, but, you know, especially yourself. I would probably, I probably would have saved myself a little bit of pain if I had, if I had gotten that message early on. Mm. So. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful reflection, Kristen. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing it. I really appreciate it. And thanks so much for doing this today. This has been so lovely. Yeah, it's been so much fun to talk to you both. I feel like it was um, more like a cocktail party than a podcast interview, except without the drink. <laughs> but it was lovely. <laughs> Drinking from the goblet of truth. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Kristen, really. And, um, thank you. This is great. Really, it may serve a lot of people. So today we had a wonderful time speaking with Dr. Kristen Neff about self-compassion, particularly the fierce form of self-compassion, which can be contrasted with more tender forms of self-compassion, which is how people tend to typically think about it. We began the conversation by talking about what fierce self-compassion is. While tender forms of self-compassion include a lot of acceptance of different kinds, including self-acceptance, fierce self-compassion leans more into action action that takes place out in the world in terms of setting clear boundaries or standing up for ourselves, or action that we take inside of ourselves in terms of looking at behaviors that we might have internally that are no longer serving us, and then making the active choice to do something different, or maybe pushing back in more aggressive ways against a excessively harsh inner critic. One of my major takeaways from the conversation is a point that Kristen made about the balance of more tender and more fierce forms of self-compassion, how they really support each other. Tenderness without fierceness becomes complacency, and fierceness without tenderness can just be excessive aggression and hostility. And Kristen really highlighted throughout the conversation how our focus here is on gender socialization, the roles that people are placed into out in the world, and how typically, of course, with many exceptions, people who are in female bodies are socialized into roles that lean into the tender forms of self-compassion, but they're really taught to avoid, even punished, when they express the fiercer forms of self-compassion. And likewise, people who are in male bodies are taught to lean into the fierce parts of self-compassion, fiercer, more aggressive energies, and then when they express themselves in more tender ways, well, they're often punished for it socially. Kristen and Rick got into a really interesting conversation, at least to me, about the various ways in which self-compassion can express itself out in the world and about these kind of dimensions of self-compassion. How sure, people who are really self-critical might also be able to achieve at a high level, but they're often worn down by it. And people who are highly self-critical might actually develop some problems with procrastination because if they do something wrong, wow, they really punish themselves for it. And that can lead to a lot of avoidance behaviors. Kristen closed with some thoughts focused on how men can support women in the expression of fierce self-compassion and really just fierceness out in the world in general. If you're interested in Kristen's work, you can find out more about her at selfcompassion.org. That's self-compassion.org. And her new book is Fierce Self-Compassion. It's available June 15th, and you can pre-order it now. I've included a link to it in the description of today's episode. 
If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and hey, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, or even tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people, and we really appreciate it. If you're interested in supporting the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show, and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. That's all for today's episode, so until next time, thanks for listening.